Burr, burr, burr. The all too familiar sound of the wheels drifting onto the gouged asphalt specifically designed to wake dozing drivers shot my falling eyelids straight back up. In a haze, I stopped the rigs flirting with flying into a ditch and righted us on the desolate backcountry road. You thinking about taking us off-roading on our way to the ER, Martin? Quipped Steve from the back of the rig, attending to his now even more agitated patient. I gave him a half-hearted wave through the window, joining the two compartments of our unit, before fumbling for that can of energy drink I had stashed somewhere in the cab. Not being able to find it only compounded my frustration with Steve ignoring the only rule I had for him when working as my partner. No jokes on a 72-hour shift. Where the hell are you? I groaned as I clumsily sifted through the trash that told the story of the last nearly 48 hours of this rig being my home. I gave up the search as my second home, and our destination pulled into view. Twin Trees Memorial. Less a hospital and more a methadone clinic. Not much else besides the pains of needing a dose could get the good folks of this backwater town to seek out a doctor. I'm home, I muttered as I backed the rig into my favorite parking spot under the broken floodlight. It was the best place to catch some sleep while telling dispatch we had to clean the rig before the next run. I popped the door and eased myself out of the driver's seat before taking the step down to the damp concrete. Despite my deliberate attempt to ease myself out, my knee still screamed from the light impact of my boots meeting the ground. A nice little souvenir I get to keep after I retire from my career of picking up limp junkies from their piles of vomit. If I ever get to retire. Speaking of junkies, I could hear our passenger arguing with Steve over why he didn't get a dose of fentanyl on this ride for the worst ditch of my life. Man, aren't you guys supposed to help people when they need it mo- the sentence died in Jeff's throat as I threw open the back of the rig and stared into the sunken pits where his eyes resided. I had bounced his scrawny ass off a wall a month ago after I caught him snooping around our station, probably looking for a way to score a quick hit from the rig's med box. The bruise it left matched the dark bags under his eyes. It pains me to remember that the bags under my eyes are much the same. Ah, oh, hell, not this guy, moaned Jeff. I had recognized his address when we got the call, so I didn't even bother to step out of the rig when we arrived. I got some small joy from being able to surprise Jeff as his chauffeur for the night. We've arrived, douchebag. I retorted back. Steve gave me a disapproving look for my language before continuing what he was saying before I opened the door. I'm sorry, sir, but I have to follow the protocols for the use of narcotics when I'm treating my patients. Steve said with an apologetic tone that the scumbag didn't deserve. Yeah, whatever, man, just bring me inside, Jeff cried back. I'm sure that itch had rudely reminded him of why he was here. Steve and I obliged the request as we rolled the gurney inside through the creaking automatic sliding doors that led into the ER. I leaned my back against the wall and tilted my head back as the all-too-familiar chemical smell of the hospital and the beeping of patient monitors tried to entice me back to sleep. I faintly heard Steve giving a textbook-perfect handover report to the charge nurse about Jeff's itch. Steve was still far too green despite being a medic for three years now. Everything had to be textbook. No paperwork would be left undone. No patient request was too asinine. No vile insult or fist hurled his way was too much for him to not return it with a smile 
and his best customer service voice. He wouldn't make it in this career. Bed six, Martin, chirped Steve, resting me from my mental fog. After a couple more snarky remarks from Jeff, we were free of him as he rolled onto the hospital bed from our gurney, and he was free to start demanding fentanyl from the nurse who drew the short straw tonight. After a quick stop at the vending machine to catch up with my dear friend Caffeine, we were back to the rig. My lips had barely met the edge of the can when Steve began his routine of thinking out loud about the woes of our patrons. That's probably the tenth time I've had to pick Jeff up, remarked Steve as he looked sideways over to where I sat on the rear bumper of the rig. We really should start having addiction treatment pamphlets to hand out for cases like these. If they can't shoot it up or snort it, these people aren't going to want anything you're offering, I retorted as I finally introduced the can to my lips. Well, we have to do something that's not just this. He sounded exasperated as he gestured back towards the ER. Look at that. You're actually starting to sound like me finally. I pointed out with just a small amount of my relishing in this development betrayed in my voice. Realizing this, Steve straightened his posture and took a deep breath of 3am night air, an air that has a hard to describe weight to it. We both knew it well. Let's call up dispatch and let them know we're clear for the next one, sighed Steve. No, absolutely not. I choked out halfway through a sip. We're going down for an hour cleaning. When was the last time we slept? Steve looked like he was about to disagree, but before he could, the radio crackled to life, giving us both the answer to this dilemma. Unit 652, Unit 652, Priority 3, Traffic. Steve skipped over to the passenger side door with an eagerness that irked me to no end, just when I thought I had gotten the Boy Scout to see things my way. Unit 652 copies, go ahead with your traffic. Steve had regained his usual chipper attitude and was chomping at the bit to go save the world. Unit 652, you have priority three traffic. Sick person, 52-year-old male, 841 Cypress Road, how copy? Unit 652 copies, en route now. Steve replaced the mic in its holder. Time to go, Martin. My knee screamed in protest as I rose from the bumper. I started gathering my words to chew out Steve for not putting us out of service for this call when a thought struck me. Where the hell is Cypress Road? After a 20-minute expletive-filled drive, expletives provided by me, we reached the outskirts of town, and the answer to my question. A bullet-riddled and rusted sign marked our arrival at Cypress Road. I had nearly blown right past the sign as it barely peeked out from the overgrown grass that surrounded it and the entire side of the road. You ever respond out here? Steve asked as he put down the county map that led us to the lonely strip of dirt that snaked its way out of sight into the trees. I looked past Steve out the passenger seat window up into the trees before answering. Not even a single porch light peered back through the web of branches. No, never. I haven't even heard of this place. Let's get on scene before dispatch sights us for a late arrival. Steve muttered as he neatly folded the map back up. The Boy Scout doesn't want a demerit, huh? I chided back as I coaxed the rig down a soft decline, onto the dirt of Cypress Road proper. I stopped caring about the metrics of our calls when the company wouldn't replace our rig, which had become the second oldest thing at this company. Holding the title of oldest at the company was my distinct pleasure and simultaneous shame. Steve ignored my dig at him as he shifted in his seat 
and tried to catch a peek beyond the trees that bordered the gentle left turn I was easing the rig into. While I would have normally followed my philosophy of getting to the call sooner equals ending the call sooner, I didn't trust the combination of soggy dirt road and bald tires to not send the back end sliding into the even soggier forest surrounding us. It was another five minutes of gentle winding back and forth through this seemingly forgotten patch of forest before something other than the green and brown of the trees came into view. Tucked away on the left side of the road by about 100 feet were the burnt remnants of a trailer in an old Ford pickup with a sunset orange paint job. Only the four cinder blocks where its tires once were kept it from meeting the ground. The mailbox, standing watch at the edge of the road, informed us that this was 821 Cypress Road. 841 was still further ahead, but still nowhere in sight. As I turned my attention back to the road to continue our search, the radio came to life with a sharp hiss. Unit 652, Unit 652, what is your low- The radio traffic died out with a loud crackle, as abruptly as it had started. Steve picked up the mic and responded back. Dispatch, this is 652. Can you repeat your traffic? Silence. Steve quickly resorted to Old Faithful and gave the radio transceiver a healthy thump with the palm of his hand. Dispatch, do you copy? Steve enunciated into the mic. Silence. Before Steve could abuse the transceiver further, 841 Cypress Road made its presence known. The road ended abruptly, and directly ahead of us was a monument to stagnation. 841 was simply another trailer, but it had succumbed to rust instead of flames as its neighbors had. What was probably the stark white of its metal walls had decayed into a sickly yellow, pockmarked with holes of rust. Its face told the story of the apathy that consumed this forgotten road. Steve gave dispatch one more attempt before dropping the mic back into its holster. Dispatch, this is Unit 652 in the blind, arrived on scene. I cranked the wheel hard to the left as I prepared to back the rig up to the trailer. As I watched our approach to the trailer through our rearview camera, something like an itch compelled me to look out the windshield. I couldn't see 841's neighbor anywhere. We had only made it another, maybe 200 feet past it, when we arrived at our destination. Still, that charred husk and the crippled pickup were nowhere to be seen. The rig jolted sharply before I had much time to ponder what it was, or wasn't, seeing ahead of me. Oh, mother! I hissed, while gently feathering the throttle to get our rear right wheel out of the pothole and now spun fruitlessly in. Steve, now seeing our predicament, cautioned me. Easy, man, easy. Before I could tell him to shut it, I hit the sweet spot and freed our wheel from the pothole. Not wanting to risk discovering another pothole, I decided that 50 feet from the trailer was close enough and threw the shifter into park. Me and Steve shared a silent glance for a moment. I'm sure, let's get this over with, went through both of our heads. With that, we both turned toward our doors, opened them, and stepped out into a gentle, silent breeze. I left the keys in the ignition and kept the engine running. It was a habit I developed from one too many times having to escape from a junkie patient that wanted to give me some new holes with a kitchen knife. Steve made it to the back of the ambulance first and popped open just one of the rear doors to grab our go bag. He had already closed the door and extended his arm to me to grab the bag by the time I reached the back. I accepted the hefty bag and lifted the strap onto my shoulder. 
We exchanged no words as we made our way toward that shadow of a home. The crunching of our boots on the dirt and the rocks, on this excuse for a driveway, took the place of any conversation. No, the night had too much tension for a chat, but the cause of this tension was eluding me. It wasn't until we had made it about halfway to the trailer and far enough away from the rig's engine that the realization hit me. Total silence. If it weren't for the foreign sounds of our boots on the ground and the hum of the rig, there would be complete silence covering everything. My newfound cognizance of this fact lifted the hairs on the back of my neck. Still, we continued our march, steeped in a tension that was rudely broken as we passed a long dead pine tree. A low growl pierced the silence from our left at the base of the tree. This sent both of us scrambling a few steps to our right and lodged my heart in my throat. I locked my eyes onto the void of darkness that was the base of the tree, hidden from the dim red lights of the rig. I didn't dare look away, and neither did Steve, as I heard him blindly fumble with the velcro strap that held his flashlight in his pant pocket. Click. Staring back at us, curled in a ball, was what was once an imposing pit bull. However, now I could count the ribs protruding through its flea-riddled fur. What caught my eye next was the choke-chain collar the dog wore around its neck, in the chain connecting it to a tie-rod hammered into that pine tree. The dog made no attempt to even rise to its feet. That growl was probably the best it could muster to scare off the two strangers now staring him down. I'm sure it hadn't had a bite to eat in weeks. Remind me to call animal control on this guy, I muttered, venom creeping into my voice. I couldn't stomach the mistreatment of animals. I was already picturing my pup at home in this condition. Steve didn't respond. He had turned his attention, and his flashlight, to the trailer. My eyes followed the path he traced from the ground up the side of the trailer. On the ground, specks of glass reflected light back at us. About five feet up was the window that the glass once belonged to. From the outside, it was like peering into the void of space. An inky black was all that was revealed of the inside of the trailer. I had almost looked away toward the door a couple of yards to the right when I noticed the holes that decorated the top left corner of the window. At first, they didn't seem any different from the rust holes that had colonized the trailer's ugly face. Then it clicked. Their perfect roundness and lack of rust, these details coalesced into a ball of lead in my stomach. An instinct, one that you would only acquire after years of this job, was clawing at the base of my skull. One word echoed in my mind. Wrong. This is wrong. Before I could voice my rising concern to Steve, I heard a heavy click and creak as he swung the door open and placed one boot on the rusted steps of the trailer. The Boy Scout hadn't even knocked first, still too eager to go save the world as always. Hey, wait, kid! I spat out as I rushed to catch up with him, pulling out my own flashlight as well. I didn't have to tolerate the searing pain on my knee for long, as I half-jogged to reach Steve who had now disappeared into the shadow of the doorway. I almost immediately ran into Steve's back as I took my plunge into that trailer. Did you not hear me, kid? I angrily whispered at the back of his head. That ball of lead in my stomach had started to strangle my vocal cords, making my voice hoarse. Hell, man, Steve shakily muttered while staring at the scene illuminated by his flashlight. My anger at the kid quickly faded as my eyes locked onto the couch 
and the man reclined on it as if we had just intruded on his afternoon nap. In his gray, swollen hands, he clutched a shotgun, its butt pressed into the stained couch while the end of its barrel plunged into the ground beef that was once his face. His memories painted the wall and ceiling above him. It took a moment for the stagnant air in this tomb to assault our senses. That familiar, sickly sweet odor forced its way into my throat. Steve suddenly hunched over, barely suppressing his retching that contorted his back. I had my own struggles as I forced to back the bile that threatened to drench Steve. After a few nauseating moments, we had both regained our composure and tried our best to become medical professionals again. Noticing Steve's continued unease, I tried my best to break the tension. He hadn't stumbled upon nearly as many bodies as I have. I guess Hannibal Control's gonna need a Ouija board to interview this guy. I choked out, past the now falling bile. Yeah, I guess so, Steve said, his voice barely a whisper. I knew a task was what he needed to get his composure back. Hey, I wanna try radioing dispatch to get the sheriff out here. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll call him up. Steve mumbled as he turned away from the trailer's tenant to walk past me and toward the kitchen table that stood at the nose of the trailer. Satisfied with the distraction I afforded to Steve, I turned my attention to our patient. The blue jeans he wore were now stained with patches of a deep brownish red. He had been dead long enough to start to petrify and leak rancid fluids into his clothes and surroundings. The dirty wife beater he wore told the same story. The only other effect he had on his person was the dog tags glinting back at me. I carefully turned the tags to face me so I could read their pressed metal. Marshall Allen. Hey, uh, we got a name for our guy here. Uh, Allen Marshall. I informed Steve as he fumbled with the mobile radio that was acting up as well. He gave me a quick nod, still facing away from Allen. Not wanting to find any more surprises for us, I decided to investigate the bedroom that waited at the end of a short hallway and its doors hanging agape. With only a couple of strides, I made it into the bedroom, passing what I assumed was the closed door to the bathroom. Shining my flashlight around the room, I found nothing particularly surprising. The cramped room barely fit the bare, piss-stained mattress directly ahead of me. Surrounding it were countless cans of beer and malt liquor. All were uniformly drained of their contents. The picture of Alan's life was becoming more and more clear to me. I returned my attention to the mattress and caught a glimpse of something peeking out from where the mattress met the wall. Lined up neatly between the mattress and cigarette-stained wall was a collection of purses and handbags. Even from where I stood at the foot of the mattress, I could tell this collection had escaped the ravages of Alan's filth. They were all pristine. I was leaning forward to get a better look at this strange assortment when a sound broke out from behind me, sending me straight into standing at attention. Ring, 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 ring. I pivoted and almost immediately spotted the source of that sound that had caught my breath in my throat. A faint blue light pulsed in rhythm with the tones at the swollen feet of Alan. In a few short steps toward the light, I could see the light and tones were coming from a cheap flip phone. The screen spelled out, Emergency Services as it scrolled across the display. Hey, Steve. Look who's finally calling. The words died in my throat as I noticed the change that had taken place in Alan's lap. Where the shotgun once rested was now our radio sitting between Alan's legs. Fighting against the tension that gripped every fiber of my being, 
I directed my gaze and flashlight to the end of the trailer. Steve was still there, facing away from me, but the shotgun was gripped tightly in his left hand, facing down towards the floor. Every muscle in his body seemed to be contracting against each other. His right arm was contorted up and backward, as if he were trying to reach for something on an invisible shelf behind him. I was about to approach him to help him when I noticed his head, the position of his head to be precise. It was contorted at an impossible angle. It was as if someone had wrapped a chain around his forehead and yanked it backward with all their might. He was almost able to look directly back at me like some screwed up owl. The ridges of his eyebrows were the only thing keeping me from making eye contact with him. A barely audible trickle of fluid brought my attention to the floor again. A puddle of urine was beginning to form around his left boot. Steve? I expelled between shuddering breaths. I hadn't noticed how hard I was now breathing. Nothing. The silence outside had invaded the trailer. The only thing that held back this oppressive force were the breaths from my burning lungs. It was hard to tell due to my ragged breaths, but I don't think he was even breathing. Gathering my courage, I took a single, tentative step toward my partner. As soon as my boot landed on the stained carpet, Steve moved with inhuman speed. His head snapped forward with a sickening crunch as his left arm swung the shotgun upward and his right hand braced the barrel under his chin. Before the scream could leave my throat, he squeezed the trigger and pelted the ceiling with a hail of bone and viscera. Ears ringing, I watched his body fall backward. The scooped out stump that was his head met the ground first with a wet thump, and the piece of meat that was once the tip of his tongue bounced across the floor, landing neatly at my feet. An icy numbness washed over me while my stomach churned. Not a word could escape my mouth as a vice gripped my throat. However, the feeling that raged inside me was strongest. It was that same instinct I had since we approached this trailer. It compelled me to bring my flashlight up toward the nose of the trailer again. I slowly guided the circle of light over my partner's limp body. Once I had reached his feet, my arm halted abruptly. I could see something now. Something that had been there directly ahead of Steve but blocked from view when he was standing a moment ago. Two dirty, gray feet with blackened toes were peeking out from a stained and moth-eaten white dress. Mostly hidden, but still discernible, were the torn remnants of duct tape that appeared to have once bound these ankles. As I soaked in these details, I finally noticed the detail that sucked the breath out of my chest. These feet floated roughly five inches off the ground. My mind churned with fear, to the point that I couldn't grasp a single coherent thought. My base instincts took over and commanded me to do the only thing I possibly could. I stepped back with the trepidation of a man on wafer-thin ice, praying that this step wouldn't plunge me into the depths. My eyes stayed locked on the bottom of that dress as I moved, and I saw that its wearer moved towards me the same distance that I thought I had gained from it. I hazarded another step backward, now beginning to enter the hallway of the trailer again, that thing moved towards me, once again. This sick dance we were locked into twisted my stomach and threatened to finally release that bile from my throat. I took another step back, this time reaching back with my left hand to find the doorknob of the bathroom. Nothing. The dress moved closer. Another step. It moved closer. 
A final step and my hand reached the doorknob, which I twisted with desperate strength. The door flew open, easily, and I threw myself in without daring to look away from the nightmare before I was inside. I slammed the door closed with my whole body. I practically fell backward against the wall, facing the sink, and slumped down into a crouch. The fear had sapped the strength from my legs. Before I could ponder what I was to do now, I felt what seemed at first to be leaves falling onto my head and around me. The sudden sensation sent me scrambling across the ground, deeper into the bathroom towards the shower. Ow! I screamed with what felt like the first breath I'd taken in years. I shined my light onto what had fallen over me, little black squares with white borders surrounding them, all identical in shape and size. I looked upward and saw the shelf mounted to the wall that I must have shaken those squares down from when I slumped against the wall. I crawled closer to inspect the squares. They were Polaroids. I grabbed one to inspect it, shining my light on it. A gasp slipped my lips when the picture's content became clear. The picture was taken standing away from a sunset orange pickup truck. The subject of the photo was sprawled across its back seat. A young girl with blonde hair in a white dress. Her mouth, wrists, and ankles were bound in duct tape. Mascara bled from her eyes that shined with an indescribable pleading for help. My hand faltered and the Polaroid slipped out of my grasp. I grabbed another, and another, and another. Unspeakable things were documented by the photographer. One featured another man, one I didn't recognize. He was holding the girl up by her hair, as if he were commemorating catching a prize bass Disgust and anger danced around each other in my chest. The final picture I dared to look at showed the girl in her white dress, dumped face down in a shallow dirt hole, bruised, broken, and violated. I slumped against that wall again. Tears were welling on my eyes from the depravity I had stumbled upon. When I had the strength to stand, I grabbed the counter and forced myself up, trying my best to ignore the protests of my knee. I looked towards the mirror in the dim light provided by my downward-facing flashlight and was confused by what I saw. Numerous dark shapes and lines obfuscated my reflection. I brought my light up to illuminate the mirror and reveal the writing that covered its surface. Don't look at her. 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 They varied in size and legibility, but the dozens of inscriptions all shared two things. Their message and being written in long, dried blood, I looked towards the door. Nothing was trying the lock, nor thrusting its claws through the cheap wood. I'm not going to die here, I whispered to my reflection looking back at me. I placed my hand on the doorknob and locked my gaze, and light on the ground in front of me. With a twist that felt like it lasted eons, I finally swung the door open. Nothing happened. My throat wasn't ripped out, my heart was still beating in my chest. I slowly stepped out and turned left toward the living room, toward escape, only to find those rotten feet floating directly ahead of mine. My breath grew rapid, then halted, when the stench from the girl in the white dress enveloped me. My eyes watered, but I didn't dare avert them from where they gazed. I prepared myself for the step that would send my body colliding with hers. I moved my foot forward, and with a barely stifled scream, the rest of me followed. But I didn't collide with anything. She had moved back. I was still practically face to face with her, but she had moved. 
Over the course of the next five minutes, we repeated the same dance of a step forward and an eternity of me attempting to catch my breath and ready myself for the next. I almost lost it when we finally reached Steve. My knees nearly collapsed as I slowly stepped over his arm. I couldn't avoid stepping in the blood that had soaked the carpet around him. With two more steps, we were at the door that led to my freedom. I cautiously rotated counterclockwise to angle myself to walk backward out of the trailer. She moved in concert with me. As I placed my foot outside of the trailer, a leathered hand with blackened finger shot out and grasped my wrist. The black nail sunk into my flesh and I involuntarily dropped the flashlight. Stay. The hollowed and withered voice beckoned to me. My eyes still locked on the ground. I struggled in her grasp. With a final, desperate wrenching of my arm, my wrist came free. Deep, burning lacerations wrapped around my wrist, but I paid them no mind. I was out. Still, I continued to walk backward while my eyes burned a hole into the ground. But she didn't follow. She stayed hovering at the doorway and soon vanished from my field of vision. With the light of my ambulance at my back guiding me, I continued my march towards escape. A whimper coming from my left at the bottom of the dead pine tree halted me. The dog. With several sidesteps, I made it to the dog. I gambled being bitten and fumbled around for the collar. I found the clasp and opened it. The dog moved with a surprising amount of speed for its condition into the woods to my left without a sound besides paws scrambling over twigs and dirt. With a few more steps, I also realized my freedom. I closed my eyes when my hand met the handle of the door. With a deep breath, I threw the door open, turned and jumped into the seat. I cautiously opened my eyes and looked around the rig. There was only me. I threw the rig into drive and raced away from that forsaken place. I nearly careened off Cypress Lane several times, but it didn't matter. Distance was the only thing that mattered. I don't remember the drive, or reaching the station, or all my co-workers asking where Steve was. Everything has been foggy since that night. The police asked me if I was on something, and they questioned me about the bodies found in that trailer the next morning. My answers weren't good enough for them. I spent the next night in county lockup. Even that far away from Cypress Lane, I found it hard to look at anything other than the floor. I was met with a surprise the next morning. They had worked overtime combing the trailer for evidence due to the strange nature of the crime. The lack of my fingerprints on the gun and the angle at which Steve fired it cleared me of most suspicion. Still, I know they're keeping a close eye on me. That doesn't matter much to me now. I'm dealing with a problem at home now. It's hard to get back to a semblance of a normal life after what I saw. It's not just about trying to feel normal again. It's difficult to get about my daily life and chores and taking care of my pup while I keep my gaze pointed at the ground. That dirty white dress hovers in front of me all throughout my house. She talks more now, too. Home. I want to tell you about a curse I have. It's not a loud curse. There are no magic sparks or green smoke. It's a very quiet curse. So quiet that I didn't even notice right away. The spell is cumbersome and rare because it has to be cast on yourself at least nine times before it works. I've had it for a few years though and I've done my research. It's called Hapa Mapalu, which can be translated simply as yesterday was better. 
It's quiet because we all have a lot of yesterdays, and most of us have a good deal of tomorrows. Who is to say how one day measures against another? Hapamapalu knows. That's who. One day, the happiest day of your life will be behind you, and you'll never feel it go, floating softer than the wind. One day, the sun won't be quite as bright as the day before, and the flowers will seem a little more gray. Did the sound of laughter always have that cynical ring to it? Did she always hesitate so long before saying I love you too? I thought it was my imagination at first, but since then I've seen it so many times, there can be no doubt. I know the look on their faces. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then try to imagine a dog that runs back and forth through the yard all day, chasing butterflies and its shadow and every passing scent along the breeze. Yet every night, someone pulls out one of the fence posts and moves the wall in a little closer, just a couple inches at a time. Until the day the dog runs out of the house and into the fence which has crept so close. The dog can't run. It can hardly turn around. But why did it ever think it had space to run? And why does it miss something it couldn't have done? That's the way it has always been. And that's the way it will always be. Sound familiar yet? Hapa Mapalu knows. And tomorrow won't be any better. But people can learn to live just fine like that. As long as it's only a little bit every day, they can get used to it before it gets even worse. And before you know it, your body hurts all the time, your food tastes rotten, and life is as bad as it can possibly be. But that's not quite true, because Hapamapalu means yesterday was better, and tomorrow is yet to come. The cripple may look back on his limping days with nostalgia. You hardly notice how easily you draw breath until it begins to rasp through a throat worn, dry, and raw. You don't feel your skin until it breaks out in marks and sores, or pay mind to your sight until the shadows start playing tricks on you. I know I didn't pay her the attention she deserved until her heart was forever closed to me. But that was yesterday, and who knows what tomorrow will bring. Hapa Mapalu knows. If you could roll back the time, you'd hardly recognize the two of you standing together. You, and who you used to be. And by the very end, it would be hard to recognize you were once a human at all. A mind is nothing but a reflection of the world that peers into it, and enough pain and bitterness and hate pouring in will poison any heart. And whether mind follows body or body follows mind matters not when both are driving each other inexorably into the monstrous, the abominable, the profane. You will feel so empty, ravenous, angry, aimed at those who had never had this curse to bear. And you will hate, 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 everyone who couldn't recognize you for who you used to be. They will treat you like an animal, and you will treat them the same, until one day your hunger gets too great and they will matter too little. You will lash out with all that suffering that is festered inside, until you are empty again, and then you will need to feed. And you will chew, 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 and never taste a thing. It seems, each of us is unique in how we suffer until a certain point, and then we suddenly find that we are the same, no matter what tortured form the body takes, nor which loathsome obsession fills our thoughts. One day will be the end of our tomorrows, and we'll have all reached the same point. That's the day when I didn't just have the curse. It's the day I was Hapamapalu too. And that's it. That's the end. I've reached the worst day, and now I'm through. I'm on the other side, and the curse is lifted, and suddenly all my tomorrows are better than my yesterdays, and the rest of my life is just a game to see how much happier I can be.
then I can't wait for every day to show me what treasures it held secret from all my days behind. If you don't show up, who will ever know what those treasures could have been? Hapamapalu knows. Say it bright and clear in your head, loud enough for me to hear you. Hapamapalu. Nice, clean, crisp words. Hapamapalu, it's fun to say, and you feel your lips bubble together like a newborn infant. Because that's what you are, you know. You're a new beginning. And now that you've said the name nine times, it's my new beginning too. Tonight is the night I lost my mind and found something better. It's the night I found you to take my place. I did not fear death, even in my final hours. I can't say that I had no regrets, but I know of no other actions or circumstances in my life which could have led to a greater serenity at the end. At peace with myself and the world around me, I slipped into that final sleep I did not expect to wake from. I believe I can tell the exact moment when I died, because it coincided with a vague sensation of falling in every direction at once. I watched something like a kaleidoscope of my body being left behind from every angle as the world folded in on itself. Thinner and thinner slices, faster and faster, interweaving together as the intricate dance of life spiraled down into a single point, and then rebounding again, a collapsing universe exploding anew, each fragment of mind unraveling itself into the form I next occupied. I was young and strong again in my new body, and the verdant garden was bliss to behold. Every luscious plant around me grew in perfect symmetry without the slightest blemish or rot, and the branches of every tree fit perfectly into place with the others as though puzzle pieces locked together. There were animals too, squirrels and deer and wolves, and many others walking openly without scurrying or stalking. No displays of fear or hunger for one another. The warmth of the sun and the richness of the air was so nourishing that I never felt the urge to eat or drink in that garden, and so too must the animals have been able to coexist so perfectly. Some of the creatures spoke to me, or at least they spoke to one another, and I found no barrier in understanding them. The birds sang with contentment, and I found the song so much more beautiful than any on earth, where they must have often been warning of danger or defending their territory from rivals. There was one thing that bothered me about the way they spoke to one another, though. Each knew only their happiness in the moment, and none showed the slightest thought about where they came from or how this place came to be. I began asking the animals, but though they stopped and listened politely when addressed, they grew agitated when I persisted on the existential question that drew my curiosity. Their answers were always evasive, suggesting pleasant things that I might do, and when pressed, always returning to the single, unequivocal rule of this place. I could go anywhere or do anything that I liked, so long as I never sought out the person in charge. If it was simply a matter of their reverence and respect, then I think I could have accepted such an answer. The way they spoke unsettled me, though. Seeing such peaceful animals become fearful as they warned me away from such pursuit. Hair rising on the backs of their necks, snarling faces, darting eyes, each utterly terrified by the notion that I would want to meet such a being. It did not make sense to me where such fear could be coming from in a world so far removed from death and pain and want. I could not rest with the idea of living eternally in terror of some unknown beast that ruled the land. The more they warned me, 
the more desperate my pursuit became, until I found myself unable to linger for a moment without my curiosity cheapening the pleasures around me. I decided I was only able to find peace at the end of my life because I knew I had followed my passions without doubt or regret. But if I were to turn aside in this quest, then I could spend forever unhappy in the knowledge that my true nature was to be as cowardly and dull as the animals. What was it to be man if it was not to master oneself and one's surroundings, to do what was impossible for other animals? All this time I didn't find a single other human, and I convinced myself that I was being put to some type of cosmic test. Perhaps there was one afterlife for the animals, and only once man has proven himself worthy is he able to elevate to an even greater paradise that he has earned. I imagined all the other humans in their mighty palaces looking down at me and laughing to see me scurrying around after the squirrels as I proved myself their equals. I knew the animals must know more than they pretended to display such fear, but none were willing to tell me what I needed to know freely. That is why I set about making a trap digging a pit in the soft and fertile earth where I might extract an answer by force. The creatures here were so trusting and stupid that I needed only to ask a badger to come stand by me where the leaves covered the hole for it to willingly oblige. The unsuspecting creature's weight burst through the concealment at once, sending it to tumble down whereupon I immediately sealed it inside with a large stone over the hole. I hadn't counted on quite how easygoing the creature could be though. It continued to disregard my questions about the creator of this place, and showed no fear of me despite my power over it. Even trapped in the dark hole, the badger slept peacefully at the bottom, as though it was its den. Forced to escalate my approach, I used two sticks to start a fire on the end of a leafy branch, and thrust this into the hole. Finally, I had its attention, as the badger whimpered, cowered away from the flame pressing itself flat against the wall as it wailed in answer to my inquiries. The badger said the ruler of this place lived among us, but I would never find him by looking. I could only act in such a way that made him find me. It was so gratifying to finally get an answer, even one as enigmatic as this. For the first time, I felt like I had power over the animals. It was no longer their equal. I allowed the badger to escape, and gathering up as much fuel as I could, I set my burning branch into the foliage and watched it spread. I watched the flame smolder into a roaring fire and relished the thick plumes of black smoke curling into the sky. It would be impossible to witness such a display without knowing a man was dwelling among the animals. The creator would find me, and at last I'd have the answers I sought. The rich air nourished the flames more than I expected, however, and they did not stop at the edge of the fuel I collected. Soon the sparks had leapt into the branches, and from one branch to the next, so perfectly fitted together, the fire raced. The birdsong turned to one of panic, as they took flight in mass around me, but the animals so long unaccustomed to fear were slow to react. Some even approached the flame to marvel at it before the fire leapt to the surrounding foliage, spreading wider and faster than I ever believed possible. Soon I stood in the middle of a raging inferno that ravished the pristine land. I couldn't stand the heat and was forced to hide myself in the hole I had dug. On earth, the fire might have consumed the land and move on or smolder out. But here the immortal trees continued to burn without cessation. There was no escape, and I could do nothing but cower as I watched the animals panic, their multitude of voices joining into a single enduring scream. 
but these immortal beings were not killed by the flames just as the trees persisted. And before my eyes I watched the still-living creatures melt and disfigure into horrendous shapes of flowing skin and exposed bone. Despite all this, or perhaps because of it, my plan still came to fruition when the Lord found me, cowering in my hole. I don't know how long I spent in his presence, but when it was over, I felt myself falling in every direction just as I had when I first died. I watched my body burn from every side until smoldering to nothing. The explosion of pain gradually subsided into the cold shock of awakening into my next birth. Reflecting upon these memories, now in my next life, it seems as though I was banished from heaven for my deeds. If I ever received answers to my most pressing curiosities about existence, or the nature of the ruler of that land, then those too must have been stripped from me in punishment. Most keenly I remember the pain of that fire, burns from which still covered my body and whose agony I will take with me for the rest of my life. But even this pain I will endure for as long as I am able, for I now fear death like I never had in my previous life. Like the animals, I fear he who rules that place, for I was the demon in heaven, and through my actions did I transform it to hell. Something strange happened to my brother, Alex. He is normally a very stoic man, rarely showing any emotions aside from when he laughs. The most he can give me is a half-assed side smile or a faint chuckle. The only way to get any confirmation from him is by directly asking him how he is, which he is at least very honest about. He isn't depressed, as far as I know. We just suspected that he just isn't that good at expressing emotions. But one morning, things were different. Me and mother were downstairs in the kitchen eating breakfast. Normally, Alex is the first to wake up, but not today. We guessed he stayed up late reading or something. Eventually, he came downstairs, and my mother greeted him. However, she stopped her words halfway through. I turned around to see what caught my mother's tongue, and saw something I never thought I'd see. Alex was standing there, smiling. No half-assed, side grin this time. It was a full, ear-to-ear -ear smile with teeth. It was a normal smile, but seeing it on Alex's face, it felt much more significant than it probably was. It shocked me, and shocked my mother just as much, like it was the first time we saw Alex smile. It took a few seconds of minor disbelief for my mother to finally ask him what he's smiling about. Hey, I'm just happy, he told us with the same smile on his face. Part of me wanted to be glad that Alex was showing a face other than the blank one he normally gives us. It was a good look on him, after all, but something about it was off-putting. Alex may have appeared happy, but he didn't make eye contact with any of us. He just stared right between us like each of his eyes were individually tracking us. His tone of voice wasn't any different from his normal tone. Upon closer inspection, it certainly didn't match his face, almost like he was pretending to be happy. Lastly, he insisted on skipping breakfast despite my mother preparing him waffles. He told her he wasn't hungry before grabbing his bag, his keys, and walking right out the door while wishing us well. You probably met a really cute girl yesterday, my mother suggested. I stayed home from school that day because I wasn't feeling well. During the day, a few of Alex's friends texted me in regards to his sudden mood change. I already knew what they were talking about, and I told each of them that he had just woke up in a good mood today. 
They all seemed pleased with seeing him happy, while one of his closest friends joked about him, saying how his face looked like a puppet. I was resting on the couch watching cartoons when Alex arrived home from school. To my surprise, that same smile he woke up with was still there. I even saw the glint of his pearly teeth from where I was lying down. Mother greeted Alex as he walked in, and, like this morning, was shocked to see he was still smiling. She finally decided to break the ice and ask him about what's got him in such a good mood. I'm just happy, that's all, he said with a steady tone. Mother pushed a little further and began asking questions. Did you meet a cute girl? Bump into an old friend? Passed an exam with flying colors? Anything at all? Nope, I'm just really happy. She excused him finally and made his way upstairs to get ready for work. Me and Mom exchanged looks when he was no longer in sight. There was a cause for concern, but neither of us could put a finger on it. I spent the rest of my sick day upstairs in my room. I was able to hear my brother come back from work, followed by what I could only interpret as an argument between him and Mom. It wasn't loud, but there was some obvious emotionally charged back and forth between them. Later, I heard Alex walk upstairs and enter his own room, followed by Mom yelling, I don't want to see you for the rest of the night. When I came downstairs to see Mother and ask what happened, she spoke as her head rested in her hand. He was sent home early from work. His manager told him that he was making customers uncomfortable with his creepy behavior and smiling. Days went by, and the same pattern repeated itself. He was still smiling every time I saw him, and when I wasn't looking, I could assume he smiled still. I would say that I was getting used to the smile, but in all honesty, there was something that was making it hard to accept. I couldn't even get an answer out of him since all he would say was that he was just happy. It all changed one day. I got back from school after I started feeling better and saw that Alex wasn't downstairs. Instead, I saw Mom and Dad sitting in the kitchen. From body language alone, it seemed like they were urgently waiting for me to come back. Before I could ask where Alex was, Dad held my hand and talked to me. Son, go to your room. It took me by surprise. Why? Did I do something wrong? No, but please go to your room and wait for us. I could tell from his tone of voice that it seemed urgent, so I obliged and walked upstairs to my room. It was dead silent there, so silent that I could faintly make out what my mom and dad were saying from the floor below me. He attacked me. Is he sick? They just tore. I couldn't get anything else but simple words, but longer words and sentences weren't intelligible. I tried to listen closer to them but I ended up picking up another person's voice instead. Hey, I heard it from outside my room. Hey, it sounded familiar. Come over here. I picked up the tone and voice of Alex from where his room was. It was muffled as it passed through several walls as it came from his room to mine. Let me show you something. I stepped out of my room to investigate, praying that if I could see Alex, that he was okay, I tiptoed out so that my parents didn't hear me and made it to Alex's door. I peeked through the door to find out. Brother, I'm happy. I'm so happy, brother. Alex stood in the very center of the room, eyes staring directly at me. His smile was ever-present, way beyond just grinning from ear to ear. The corners of his mouth were torn and broken, pushed apart by the new rows of a thousand teeth. It reached from one side of the room to the opposite, looking more uneven 
the further from his head it extended. His lips stretched beyond what they should be able to, clipping and breaking like old paint on rotting wood. There was no way to tell how he kept his smile from falling, aside from some apparent struggles. I could sense a growing pain from him through the crack of the door, a silent cry for help being masked by an impossible emotion. It was at that moment when I passed out, probably from shock, but I couldn't remember. I woke up on the floor right in front of Alex's room. The door was wide open. The window in his room opened and Alex was no longer inside. I heard the stomping of my dad rushing upstairs with my mom following him. Mom helped me stand while dad searched inside Alex's room, then my room, then the bathroom, then their own bedroom. It was clear that wherever Alex was, he wasn't in our home anymore. As of writing this, it's been several weeks since Alex went missing. We tried to go to the police, but the trail ended up cold. Mom and Dad are still clearly shaken up from what happened and have been extra attentive to me and my health as a result. I can't lie when I say I was pretty shaken too, but I'm not so scared of what happened to Alex. It scares me more to think about where he is now than what he's doing with that sick, twisted smile of his. Before this week, I would have told you that running the acquisitions department at the American History Museum was the best job in the world. Never a day goes by where I'm not learning something new, discovering lost artifacts, which forced me to continually reassess my understanding of our rich culture. Most people don't understand how glamorous the work really is. You have to understand that our donations generally come from extremely wealthy families each with long histories of their own and treasures which are passed through the generations. These donors are typically motivated by the large tax breaks they receive for their charitable contributions. So I am often flown across the country and treated to the highest comfort that money can buy, no doubt buttering me up in hopes of a favorable appraisal and acceptance of their donation. When I accepted the invitation of Mr. Columny's estate, I had every expectation of the luxury and finery befitting the Tudor-style mansion depicted in the enclosed photograph. From the steep gable roof to the elaborate masonry and embellished doorways, the residence itself was a relic of the unimaginable wealth with which the plantation owners once ruled the southern countryside. Mr. Columny was there to greet me at the end of his cobblestone driveway, hands in the pockets of his pristine white suit, a golden chain dangling from his breast pocket, silk around his neck and a beige fedora with a roguish tilt. He might have stepped straight out of an oil painting from the era. He was gracious to help me with my bags and show me inside, incessant welcome and gratitude spilling from his mouth with a heavily accented drawl. I followed him from room to room, keeping careful tally of everything he was willing to part with. Dark wooden furniture from the West Indies, ornate baroque chests of drawers, exquisite colonial paintings. He breezed by each of them as though they were hardly worth the effort of describing. All the while, he continued gesturing me onward with an almost conspiratorial hush to his voice, promising a prize that he guaranteed was unique to his collection. Everything I saw was of impeccable condition, seemingly untouched by age or refurbishment at least until we reached the worn wooden doorway where his intention was most fixed upon. Opening this with a flourish, he led me inside to a bare and dilapidated room. Once painted red, the humidity in the air had long since stripped all life and color from the walls, 
to leave the most dreadful pale streaks and blotches around us. The sole furniture was a splintered three-legged stool, the sole occupant a small brown-skinned boy sitting atop it. Oh, he's held up well, hasn't he? Mr. Columny said, puffing out his chest with pride. They don't usually last more than a year, you know. The skin discolors something awful and starts to stretch and peel away. It's been over a hundred years since he's died, but he still looks like he could jump up and skip around, doesn't he? I'd never seen a taxidermied human before, and I didn't feel qualified to comment on the condition. He was right about how real it looked, though. I had the most unnerving feeling that the boy was looking right at me, and that if I were to turn away for a moment, I might find him in an altogether different position. A clear stitching was visible in the dark skin, which ran up one side of his body, disappeared into his curly black hair, and emerged again on the other side. His eyes were made of glass, but a stern judgment still lingered in his furrowed brow, as though he knew exactly what had happened to him and blamed me for his fate. Would you like to know the secret? Mr. Columny pressed with a hot whisper down the back of my neck. Why the skin stayed so fresh? He waited for a moment and continued without the least bit of encouragement. Even modern taxidermists couldn't preserve someone this well, because they all make the same mistake. They'll wait until the subject is dead to begin the tanning process. Mr. Columny rolled back on both of his heels, puffing out the gold on his chest and looking immensely pleased with himself. Then, to address the shock and disgust on my face, he added, Don't worry, it was all perfectly legal. The boy was my family's property, after all. It's better than what could have happened to him. Now, wouldn't that be an interesting exhibit in your museum? Still too shocked to address the macabre sight, a professed interest in returning to inspect the rest of the house. Mr. Columny became indignant, though, insisting that this was his rarest and most valuable possession. I told him directly that our museum would not feature such a disturbing display, visibly angering the man whose voice quivered when he next spoke. He told me that he would give nothing to any museum with such a selective view of history, and that I was no longer welcome in his house. I was only too happy to oblige, grateful for the cleaner air outside that vile room. I left Mr. Columny on no uncertain terms and returned to my museum empty-handed telling nothing of the incident and doing my best to put it out of my mind entirely. That should have been the end of it. But not a week later, I was in my office preparing for a meeting with Professor Horvat of New York's Natural History Museum when someone began to hammer on my door. Before I could welcome my unexpected guest, the door opened and I was confronted with Mr. Columny once more. I don't believe he had changed his clothes since the day I had seen him last. His white suit was dull and stained with yellow sweat his hair unkempt and greasy. Too surprised to protest, I backed away and made room for him as he entered my office, dragging a luggage cart behind him. The object on the cart was concealed beneath a white sheet, but by its size and shape I could easily guess that the boy was seated underneath. Mr. Columny ducked back into the hall for a moment to ensure his discretion, then returned, closing the door behind. What are you doing here? Get out! Get out! I insisted but he only shooed me away with his hands before sitting heavily before my desk. His face was flushed as though he'd been running, and he seemed to need a moment to catch his breath before he could speak a word. Look, maybe if you scheduled an appointment I could work something in this afternoon, I said trying my best to sound reasonable, although I was trying to think of excuses to cancel, even as I said it. As it is, I'm already expecting- You've got to take him, Mr. Columny interrupted with passion. 
I can't have him in my house anymore. Not for another night. I won't. Already I could hear voices and footsteps in the hallway outside. The thought of being caught by Professor Horvat with this wretched thing in my office was too much to bear. There's a storm room on the right, I replied, automatically. Hurry now. You can leave it there for the time being, but you must retrieve it this afternoon. Do you understand? And don't think about skirting off either. I know where you live, and we'll have a shift back at once if you do not return. He thanked me profusely, and together we wheeled the cart into the adjoining room. There were more questions that I wanted to ask, but there was already knocking on the door, and there was nothing that could be done. Professor Horvan entered, regarding Mr. Colomney with surprise and perhaps even revulsion, as my disheveled visitor pushed rudely out of the room. The sudden thunder of footsteps outside indicated that he was running as soon as he got the chance. Fortunately, the meeting was otherwise undisturbed, and none of my colleagues were wise to the fact that the taxidermied boy sat concealed in my storeroom. It was no great shock that Mr. Colomney failed to return that afternoon, but I was caught up with other appointments and didn't have a chance to dispose of the boy that day. In fact, the whole situation was so out of the ordinary and surreal to me that I hardly thought about it when I returned to work the next morning. When I did arrive, the whole museum was in an uproar over an ongoing school field trip that had misplaced one of its students. The whole building was searched from top to bottom and I was so distracted by the ongoing efforts that I didn't spare a thought about the strange events of the previous day. It didn't return to my attention until I had joined the search, only to find a second taxidermy child in the storeroom beside my office. A little girl beside the boy, with freshly stitched skin running up one side and down the other, with little glass eyes and a little furrowed brow, silently judging me for all the sins I have never done. It wasn't my fault, I told the glass-eyed children. I didn't do anything to either of you, and I would have stopped it if I could, but... But of course, that didn't help them in the least, and they couldn't stay here, and it would only be a matter of time before the missing student was identified. I keep them both in my house now, waiting to hear back from Mr. Colomney. The house I visited has been sold already, and I can't exactly ship them back to the innocent people who live there now. I know I should burn them, or bury them, or chop them up, or throw them in a lake. I know I shouldn't feel guilty for what happened to them, but I can't even hide them in the closet without feeling ashamed. Instead, the boy is sitting at my kitchen table, the girl propped up beside the dresser in my room. I didn't do this to either of them, but I know that if I treat them poorly, or ignore how they suffered, and I find a third has joined them one day, then that one will really be my fault. And that would be as bad as stitching them up myself. So I wish them good morning and good night. I read to them from the paper, and I keep the light on when they're alone in the room. And I wait for the day their brows are smooth, and I catch them smiling again. As a young child, I was abducted from the basement of my childhood home and taken somewhere that I still struggle to quantify or explain. I suppose this is my attempt to put down as honestly as possible what happened to me and hoping open-minded individuals might find this story. This was well over 20 years ago. I was 8 years old with two siblings. My older sister Denise was 10 and my younger brother Howie would have been 5. We had a very conventional American Midwestern upbringing. My parents were fairly happy and we all shared a beautiful home in a nice neighborhood, riding the high of 90s consumerism. My childhood was extremely happy up until a certain point. Things changed when my sister and I created an anomaly, 
a haunting of sorts, in the closet of our playroom as children. The dolls assembled in the closet we had designated as the Barbie Theater and took their seats. The spooks and thrills we felt began to elevate as the first choreographed spooky occurrences interrupted our peaceful cinema-attending dolls. My sister was the architect of this story, and I followed along, absolutely terrified. Tensions grew as the story built to the crescendo. Woody from Toy Story was possessed by a demon and rose from his seat high into the air, turning to gaze at the audience. Bedlam has been established for the crowd of Barbies, and our pretend fear had become quite real. Our emotions were palpable as the Barbies began their exorcism, calling for Satan to leave Woody as he began to shake and convulse before the theater screen. We snapped back to reality when the room suddenly went dark for a split second, and the light began flashing rapidly. Denise and I turned to each other and screamed, clutching one another in desperation. Our senses came back to us quickly. Mom was unamused, standing in the doorway of the playroom, switching the light on and off, informing us she'd been calling down the stairs for five minutes, and we can't just get sucked into games when we have to go brush our teeth and get ready for bed. Holding hands, Denise and I ran out in front of Mom so she would create a buffer between us and the looming unknown of the basement stairs when the lights went off. One of the most agonizing parts of my childhood was that very real fear of monsters and demons snatching at the heels every time I flew up the stairs after playtime, and that night it was an especially present sensation. Admittedly, parts of my memories have faded. I'm rusty on the exact order of things, but I remember the hole in the wall showed us closely enough after the haunted movie theater game that I connected the two events in my mind. Denise and I made a spooky story for the closet, and a few days later, a spooky dark hole showed up in the wall on the other side of the closet. It just made sense to me. Howie actually noticed the hole first. I got home from school and mom asked me to get Howie from the basement where he was playing. Going to the stairs, I looked down and saw Howie was hunkered into the corner that was a few feet from the bottom of the stairs. He was on his hands and knees, with his ear pressed to the floor like he was looking for something underneath a shelf, except it was just the wall. I wasn't too thrown off by this. Howie was five and a weirdo to boot, so I yelled down at him to come upstairs. My mother said from the other room to actually go get him and not to just yell. Rolling my eyes, I made my way down the stairs to Howie, who was still not acknowledging me in any way. When I got to him, I placed my hand on his back, and he jolted like he was startled. I asked him what he was looking at, and he got up off his hands, and while sitting on his knees, he pointed to a hole in the corner. It was about the size and shape as if someone had ripped the corner off a playing card and traced it out. Inside it was pitch black, somehow blacker than black. Something about it made my tummy hurt. I asked him what was in there, and he calmly told me there was a funny person in there, hiding in the wall. My tummy ache lurched, and I almost vomited when he said that. I'm sure an adult would have written that off as childish imagination, but as a child with an imagination myself, I immediately took him at face value. There was someone hiding in the wall. Up until that moment, the most scared I had ever been was the other day, playing in the closet with my sister. More scared than when a thunderstorm took out the power and a tree branch broke through my bedroom window. More scared than sneaking behind the couch while my parents watched Interview with a Vampire last Halloween. 
The moment Howie said what he said, that became the most scared I had ever been. Every fiber of my being was screaming to get away. I grabbed Howie by the arm. I could hear him complain, but couldn't understand him through my adrenaline. It felt animalistic. I ran up the stairs, dragging poor Howie behind me. I slammed the basement door and ran to Mom, Howie still in tow, and began wailing to her about a man in the walls downstairs. My mother was completely confused. I had been fine just a minute ago, and she had been downstairs numerous times throughout the day doing laundry, and had noticed nothing awry. I was finally able to calm my tears enough to explain to her what I found Howie doing and what he had said about someone in the walls. She laughed and explained that was impossible because it was a basement, an unfinished basement to be exact. She explained to me all of the exterior walls were cement brick with dirt on the other side. The wall to our playroom was just wood and drywall. There was only a few inches of space, definitely not room enough for funny people to hide. She tried to reassure me by going down, but as soon as she walked towards the basement door, I began to wail again. Seeing that wasn't going to help, she made me a snack and had me sit and watch cartoons with Howie and Denise. I was beginning to relax by the time my dad came home. We had supper and mom told dad about the hole in the walls downstairs. Dad was a contractor, so he felt quite confident doing the repair. He used a moisture meter to ensure a leak hadn't caused the hole. When a water source had been eliminated as the culprit, he figured one of us had kicked a hole in the wall and did not want to fess up, so he patched the drywall good as new. With a reassuring kiss on the head, he later told me he had it covered and that he checked and there was no one in there. I slept peacefully that night, and over the next few days, the discomfort I felt while in the basement waned slightly. I still refused to be down there by myself, but Denise and I almost always played together, so it was rarely an issue, until Denise had to go to the bathroom one day. I wanted to go up with her, but we were in the middle of creating an easy-bake oven convection, and she wanted me to stay to watch and make sure it didn't burn. I felt great apprehension and told her we could unplug the oven and then plug it back in when we got back. Denise called me the B-word. Baby, my pride was devastated, and my fate was sealed. I committed to my easy-bake vigil, and Denise was up the stairs, leaving a very heavy silence in the playroom. I tried to keep my mind occupied, reading the directions on the box for the cake mix and then fussing around with a random Barbie. A feeling like I was being watched appeared suddenly in my consciousness. I dutifully tried to ignore it as I felt my heart beat faster and my discomfort grew rapidly. I threw myself harder into my Barbie fussing, dragging that useless plastic brush over her tangled locks, wondering what was taking Denise so long. Behind me I heard a noise like a light click or a tap. I froze over the easy bake, my eyes wide. I definitely not heard my sister come back down the stairs and Howie wasn't even in the house. I heard the sound again that was coming from the closet. A brief description of the closet. It's unfinished, lined with particle board. It was maybe six feet wide and three feet deep. It had no doors. We had play clothes and some winter clothes hung up for storage. Underneath that were some boxes stacked up and the other half of the closet was a jumbled pile of toys and stuffed animals. It had only been maybe a week since we cleared it out for the doll theater, but it was packed full again. I was absolutely petrified, and I wanted to run away, but the closet and the door were on the same wall, so I would have to run closer to the closet to leave, which freaked me out. 
The sound continued from behind me, and as if I was under the Pied Piper's spell, I felt my head turn, leading my eyes to see what was producing that noise. When the closet came into my view, it took me a moment to see through the visual noise of the clutter and find the source of the tapping. My mind processed what I was seeing and I began to scream uncontrollably. Feet and legs were underneath me before I was even aware I was moving, fleeing, flying up the stairs, screaming. I couldn't stop screaming. And when I had turned around and looked behind me in the playroom, sticking out from under the hanging clothes and jackets, was a black, skeletal hand, almost like a mummy, pinching a Barbie, high heel between its fingers and walking the shoe across the boxes. Howie was right. There was someone in the walls. Dad and Denise went down to investigate for me, and they were unable to find anyone. Later that night, though, Denise came into my room with her hands behind her back and tears in her eyes. I asked what was wrong, and without saying a word, she produced her left hand and opened it. A mint green barbie heel lay in her palm. I immediately felt very uncomfortable, and I asked her if that was the one from her jewelry chest. She shook her head and brought out her other hand and revealed an identical mint shoe. Denise explained the second one was the one from her bedroom, the first one she had found on the boxes in the basement closet, and we were both incredibly scared. Denise, having a lavish doll and wardrobe situation, we only had one pair of mint green heels, one of which we both knew I had lost during a road trip at a McDonald's in Georgia last year. It had caused a huge fight between us, because those heels went perfectly with Denise's favorite doll dress, and she had melodramatically stored the other shoe in her jewelry box as a sign of reverence. Yet, here we sat with what felt to us like extremely convincing evidence of supernatural occurrences we could not yet begin to rationalize. We didn't even discuss it. Denise stayed in my bed with me that night, and I honestly think we hardly slept. We were so afraid. After that, we avoided the basement at all costs. It had always been a little spooky down there, but it had quickly surpassed the creepy tolerances of little girls that wanted to play with dolls and host story time for their stuffed animals. We'd plan recon missions ahead of time for toys we wanted, begging our parents to come down with us while we snatched the toys we needed that day and fled back to the safety of the upstairs. My mother is a neat freak and didn't appreciate our messy and toy-cluttered bedrooms, so that coddling did not last long. We were allowed to keep a streamlined collection of toys upstairs, but the rest had to be returned to the playroom. Denise and I were still so scared of the basement that we chose to stop playing with the majority of our toys. We pursued other endeavors, reading together or practicing gymnastic tumbles in the yard or watching cartoons. I had done a very successful job skirting around the basement and had not gone down there alone since the night I saw the hand. I had hardly been down there at all, even with a chaperone. That changed one cold and bitter November morning. Mom was very busy, as both Denise and Howie had gotten really sick. She had been running around all night taking care of them, and that morning she had Howie in a cool bath trying to get his fever down. She was on the phone with the doctor in the bathroom. I could hear the gratitude and relief in her voice when they could get Howie in as soon to see the doctor. Calling me into the bathroom, she explained that she knew I was scared of the closet downstairs, but she had to watch Howie and needed me to go into the basement and get their coats out of the closet. 
My initial reaction was to balk and protest, perhaps too vehemently. Mom called me the B-word. Brave. My fate was decided. Stealing myself at the top of the stairs, I tried to cling to the bravery instilled inside me by my mother. But with each step down, I felt it evaporate. Halfway down the stairs, I noticed the hole was back in the corner. Fighting every instinct in my body, I made myself go down the stairs. There was daylight out, but overcast, so the entire basement had a gloomy light about it from the small windows around the ceiling. I didn't like the way it made the shadows look inky and mysterious. I pressed my back to the handrail as hard as I could when I got to the end of the stairs, giving myself as much space as possible from the hole while sidestepping to the playroom door. Taking a deep breath, I walked into the room, resolute. I knew what I had to do. I knew exactly where their coats were. I needed only to reach out and snatch them off their hangers and then run like hell. Except, when I got myself in front of the closet, I couldn't see anyone's coats. I froze, unsure what to do. I knew they were in there, nestled behind the play clothes and snow pants were our winter coats, but I absolutely did not want to put my hands in there to find them. My plan had depended on visibility and accessibility. Weighing my options, I decided the worst outcome was disappointing mom. I gingerly reached out and tugged on the hem of an old bridesmaid dress, guiding it out of the way, feeling slightly more emboldened after not seeing the hand appear. I very cautiously grabbed the leg of my snow pants and saw, with relief, the sleeve of my mother's coat underneath. Reaching out to her coat, I felt time slow as I saw the hand suddenly burst out through the clothes, snatching my wrist with surprising strength and firmness. Despite the papery and dusty appearance of the hand, it was quite solid. Barely enough time to whimper, I was yanked into the clothes. I felt my legs scrape over the boxes and I was suddenly in a place in between. Not between the closet and the wall, but I think a place between dimensions. Discomfort was my physical baseline there. I don't believe my form was intended to be in that plane. Every inch of my body had what felt like a cold, gelatinous layer over it. Breathing felt like static. Despite my physical discomfort, my fear quickly dissipated. My emotions were muted, placidity dominated. I could only feel the faintest flutter of curiosity about where I had found myself. Any worry or anxiety felt like it was floating ten feet below me underwater. Keeping any train of thought became challenging. Slowly, my eyes adjusted to the darkness of this place, and pinpricks of light appeared throughout the never-ending darkness, like stars in the sky. The closest thing to me looked like a hole in the wall. With dreamy bemusement, I realized it was the hole in our basement wall. The light was enough to illuminate the figure that had dragged me here, and that's exactly all it was. Just a figure. Humanoid, completely black, featureless, not even eyes. It looked more like a silhouette than a solid being in this realm, compared to its charcoal appearance outside. I then became aware that I wasn't beholden to gravity, and I let myself drift away. The figure drifted with me. Although I didn't mind them as much here, they didn't seem as scary now. Dreamily, I headed towards the nearest light above me and looked through the hole, gazing suddenly into a scene somewhere in Asia. It looked like a sweatshop, Rows of women hunched over whirring sewing machines. A man roamed around and screamed at them. Instantaneously, as soon as my eyes laid sight on this scene, 
I could feel every person's emotions in that room more vividly than I have even felt my own. The strength, the fear, the misery, the resolution, the defeat, the hope. Everything washed over me at once, and it felt amazing. Pure, unadulterated human emotion. Even the bad was intoxicating when experienced this way. After a while, I let myself float onward to the next light. This hole opened in a hospital room somewhere in the world. The people looked white, but I couldn't understand what they were saying. I didn't need to know the language as the scene was universal. A very pregnant woman was in the process of giving birth, the father by her side and the doctor and nurses surrounding her at the bottom. I watched and felt everything in the room as that new life was brought into their world. The exhaustion and pain from the mother wrapped in unbridled joy. The acute stress and self-assuredness of the staff as they rushed to monitor the baby and mom. The relief from the father that his family was safe. The sheer love of the parents as they looked down on their newborn. The confusion and pain of the infant that couldn't understand his shockingly cold and bright surroundings. Onward I moved from that vignette, towards a new light. This one was much dimmer. It was a fairly dark bedroom, but you could tell it was daylight outside from the light around the window. A woman was lying in bed. I could hear her crying. More impactful, I could feel her sadness. And this was an old sadness. Despair and pain hung like incense in the room. That one I didn't understand at the time, and I floated on, my silent companion following close by. So on and so forth. I journeyed through this space in between, witnessing and feeling an unbelievable range of the human experience. I saw the mundane and the glorious. I saw crimes and acts of violence that would bring the most grizzled homicide detective to their knees. Yet none of it seemed to disturb me. It all washed over me like dreams. The power and clarity of the emotions while viewing was juxtaposed sharply to the dullness of my current reality. Yet it never felt voyeuristic. It simply was. I'm not sure how long I drifted through. Occasionally, other figures like my companion would pass by. That was the only time they held my wrist to stop my travels, waiting until the stranger passed, although the others also felt benign to me. The holes sometimes opened up into cracks or openings in walls or ceilings. Sometimes it was through an item. Looking around one room, I could see in the reflection of a mirror that I was gazing in through the eyes of a porcelain doll. After a while, I became aware of a distinct melancholy I felt while gliding in the void space when I wasn't distracted by other people's lives. I raised my hands to my face and saw in the dim light my fingers were beginning to turn black, like my companion, whom I was starting to think of as a friend. We shared a sort of understanding despite never saying a word to each other. There was an intuitive logic to how this place worked, similar to the way you simply understand what is true in a dream. What I understood is that I was becoming one of the shadow forms. If I stayed much longer, I would lose my own humanity, as I sustained myself emotionally on the sweet nectar of others' feelings, and my physical form metamorphized into a shadow. I understood, on some level, I didn't want to transform. Through the fog, I remembered my family, and I felt a yearning of my own for the first time in this place. My companion simply nodded their head and gently took my hand, and guided me towards a particular hole in the darkness. I gazed in, and I recognized this place. It was the bottom of our basement stairs. It felt like an eternity since I had seen it, as if on command I saw Howie walk down into view, 
crouching down as I'd seen him do so long ago. Pressing his face to the hole, I could hear him call my name, saying he missed me and was sorry the man in the wall got me. Feeling his unadulterated sadness wash over me, I tried to call out to him, but I couldn't speak in the void. Looking to my companion, we nodded sagely to one another, and I reached a trembling hand towards my brother. I broke through as easily as I had been dragged in. I could briefly feel Howie's elation at seeing my hand as he helped drag me through. Despite that the opening was no larger than a mouse hole, I easily fit through and found myself sprawled out on top of Howie. He was screaming and laughing so loud, I hugged him and I began to cry as the emotional sedation of the place in between wore off, and I felt very much like a little kid who was lost and scared in a crowd and had just been found by their mother. We bounded up the stairs, through the kitchen, flying past police officers and extended family, into the main room and straight into my parents' arms. That hug with my mom and dad and Denise and Howie was the greatest thing I have ever experienced. Looking up, I noticed a skeletal finger reaching out and wiggling at me through a small hole near our fireplace. I let out a little smile. I knew my companion could sense my gratitude for reuniting me with my family. The next few days were a blur. I was dehydrated and borderline hypothermic when I was taken to the hospital. I lost the big toes on both feet and the tip of both my middle fingers to what the doctors diagnosed as frostbite. Otherwise, I was fine, and the police questioned me for hours about where I had gone. I lied through my teeth and told them I didn't know and couldn't remember. All I could remember was being cold and that it was dark, and then suddenly, I was back downstairs. Police completely demolished our basement looking for evidence of a hidden prison my parents had kept me in, or a pipe or abandoned well I could have fallen in. At the end of the day, they were more puzzled than anything, and the official police report of my disappearance and discovery basically dictated I got lost and came home on my own a few days later. I could tell it really bothered some of the police. They were worried there was a child abductor on the loose and that I was too scared to say anything, but even at my age. I had the sense to realize they would never believe the truth. Everyone believed Howie was still sick and fever dreamed of me crawling out of the hole. When I asked him about it a few years ago, he claimed he remembered it as a dream he had. Denise is the only person I've ever told my story to, up until writing this story. While I don't doubt that she believed me, I think my story disturbed her more than whatever she had imagined happening to me while I was gone. She couldn't understand how I could be okay after witnessing murders and tragedies. How could I process that emotionally after feeling those extremes? I tried to explain to Denise the goodness I had felt in there too. About the baby being born or feeling a toddler's joy while dancing through a sprinkler or the old couple holding hands in a hospital room. Feeling such love and warmth towards one another, it blazed like the sun. Eventually, I figured she probably would never understand. If it hadn't happened to myself... I'd struggle to understand. I moved on pretty quickly, yet I kept the experience close to my heart, using what I had learned to be a kinder and more empathetic person. Ever since then, every once in a while, I will catch a glimpse of a charcoal hand sliding out of a hole in the wall or a crack in the floor, and they wave at me or wiggle some fingers. I smile and wave back, letting my love radiate to my friend that had shared so much with me. I let them know, Life is good. There's nothing wrong 
with physical attraction, opening the door to a relationship. I wouldn't even mind if she only wanted me for sex, because I understand that physical intimacy breaks down social barriers and makes it possible for us to get to know each other on a deeper level. I'm worried that my girlfriend wants to use my body for something else though, and it's been keeping me up at night. When we first started dating, I used to think it was cute how she liked to watch me fall asleep. She was subtle about it before I called her out, just peeking out of the corner of her eyes with this little smile on her face. She was really embarrassed when I first asked her about it. She pretended not to know what I was talking about, getting all flushed and flustered trying to come up with an excuse for what she was really looking at. Eventually, she admitted that she always had trouble falling asleep though, and that watching me breathe was relaxing and soporific for her. I promised her that I would never judge her for her secrets, and she promised to love me for it. After her secret was out, she dropped all pretenses and turned it into a joke. She'd used two pillows under her chin to prop up her head, turn practically horizontal in bed with her legs dangling over the edge, and just stare at me with her wide hazel eyes. It was the first of many quirks that would transform her from a stranger into my best friend, and I cherished all the little building blocks that made her the only one for me. Then came the day I lost my job. It was honestly my own fault for a string of stupid mistakes, an order sent to the wrong person, losing a check I was supposed to cash, mixing up my schedule and showing up late. I tried to tell my boss that I'd just been fatigued and not thinking clearly, but I was ashamed about my blatant screw-ups and couldn't muster much of a defense. Part of me was even relieved because it meant I'd finally have a chance to rest and recover from whatever was making me so tired. Adding insult to injury though, I had even more trouble settling down at night because I kept worrying about money whenever I closed my eyes. I didn't want my girlfriend to worry too, so I told her everything was fine. I couldn't fall asleep the first night after I was fired, but I closed my eyes and pretended, making sure to breathe slow and even to help her fall asleep beside me. After a while of faking it, I heard her rustle around and get out of bed. I peeked out of the corner of my eye to see her open the bottom drawer of her nightstand. I closed my eyes again and focused on breathing, before she caught me awake. The last thing I wanted after a hard day was a midnight conversation about the future. A few moments later and I felt her climb back into bed. Pretty soon I started feeling this brushing, tickling feeling on my ear. My first instinct was that she suspected I was awake and was trying to test me. So I concentrated really hard on laying still and breathing slow. The tickling intensified to a persistent itch though, growing more and more powerful and intrusive as it moved deeper into my ear. I jerked upright when I couldn't take it anymore and swatted at the itch, expecting my fingers to close around a feather or whatever she was harassing me with. I didn't predict the hard mass of squirming legs like a centipede. I let go out of a dumbfounded shock. That was a mistake. It reacted to my touch by burrowing deeper into my ear. The sensation was now coming from inside my head more than it was on the exterior. I tried to snatch at it again to pull it out, but something sharp stung my finger and I yanked away. Another mistake. By the time I realized what was going on, it was almost entirely inside me. My girlfriend started shouting, but I was so distraught that I couldn't process what she meant by, Don't hurt it! I ran to the bathroom and turned on the light just in time to see the last inch of the creature kick and squirm and wriggle inside my ear. My girlfriend appeared behind me in the mirror, wringing her hands and averting her eyes. 
What do you mean don't hurt it? I asked, her words finally getting through. The interior itching feeling was already subsiding, but I felt heavier and more tired than ever. You had a bad dream, she told me. Come back to bed. I wanted to believe her so badly. I stared into the mirror at the reflection of her wide eyes, and all I could think about was all the nights she'd watched and waited for me to fall asleep. I turned without saying a word and pushed past her. She didn't try to stop me until I had reached her nightstand, and by then, it was too late. I pulled open the bottom drawer and saw a glass jar half buried amongst her socks and underwear. She tried to pull me away, but I managed to lift it out and look inside. It all the squirmy, crawling, bug-like creatures crawling around inside. At the two empty glass jars beside it, I sat and stared while my girlfriend's words washed over me. The lapping of cold water I was too numb to feel. They aren't so bad. I've got them in me too. They need to be somewhere warm and safe. And you promise not to judge me. Why won't you look at me? They won't forgive you if you try to leave. The fire at my campsite was burning low when the stranger separated from the shadows to join me. The collar of his long coat was turned up against the chill and his bony fingers clutched a rough rope leash, which extended behind him into the gathering night. Howdy, camper. I grunted, barely taking my eyes off the comforting flames. There was a row of fires burning all along this side of the hill, a testament to how many people had fled the city this weekend in search of peaceful isolation. My old husky lifted her head to sniff the smoky air in the opposite direction of the man, apparently oblivious to his presence. You lost or something. I assumed he had just stumbled into the wrong campsite and would soon continue to his own plot, but he maintained his rigid posture at the edge of the light. I watched his hands lighten as the rope pulled taut, long fingers remaining clenched as it fell slack again. You got a dog too? I broke the silence again, shifting uncomfortably on my uneven stump. Don't mind Ambus here, her guard days are over. She's almost blind and won't hear a thing unless you say it's about food. Ambus perked up again, leaning into me as I scratched the thinning fur behind her ear. The man in the coat took a step forward and perched upon a rock about twice the distance from the fire that I was. His face was sour with pursed lips, the dark stubble on his face doing little to fill his sunken features. He gave a sharp tug on the rope, but it went taut as his animal resisted the effort. I could only distinguish his dog's silhouette in the shadows, but it seemed oddly lumpy and misshapen from here. The man pulled again, viciously this time like the animal was out of control, even though it was just sitting there on the ground. The animal didn't relent, however, and the man just shook his head and let the rope fall slack again. Ambus used to be like that too, but there isn't much fight left in her now. I chuckled. Ambus was giving in to the scratch and had been slowly rolling onto her back to grant me access to her shaggy belly. We used to hike out here all the time when she was younger. There were less people back then and she could just run without a leash as far as she wanted in any direction. Sometimes I wouldn't see her for an hour and I'd get so worried, shouting for her until my voice was hoarse. But she always came back, trotting and frolicking, so happy and carefree that I didn't have the heart to stay mad at her. Wargol. The man spoke at last, a dark and guttural articulation. What's that now? My dog. Wargle. Come, Wargle. The fire won't hurt you. 
The man pulled again, this time with both hands. A deep, reluctant growl answered him, as though bargaining to be repaid for his troubles. The creature finally consented and plodded up to sit beside him. I laughed when the firelight illuminated the animal wearing a puffy green dragon costume, with soft cloth ridges and wings sewn on the back and sides. The black lab had narrow yellow eyes, which indicated it knew exactly how ridiculous it looked. Well, no wonder he's not happy, I said. I'd be embarrassed to be seen in that getup, too. So he doesn't scare the children, the man said. He tried to pat the animal, but the dog growled and bared his teeth until the hand was removed. My husky rolled onto her haunches, crouched and alert. The hair was rising on her back, but I stroked her comfortingly until she settled to the ground. Well, that's something new for you, isn't it, Ambus? Never seen a dragon before. She did catch a rabbit once, though. Saw her chasing it, but never thought she'd actually catch it. I think she was surprised, too, because the moment she had it in her jaws, it kicked her in the chest and she dropped it right away. I laughed and leaned back against my hands to stare up at the stars. This is probably the last trip out here for us, though. I don't think my heart could bear seeing these hills without her at my side. I tried to laugh again, but the sound came out all wrong. I keep Wargle close, too, the man said. He loves me deeply because he doesn't know any better. Yeah, I didn't know what to say to that. Dogs sure are great like that. The man reached for the dog again, and it snapped at him this time. The man didn't flinch, so I thought the dog was just playing. But when he pulled his hand away, I saw blood flowing freely from a deep gouge in the fleshy base of his thumb. The man stared dispassionately at the red trickle running down his forearm. Uh, are you okay? I asked. The man smiled and the firelight glistened off long, sharp canine teeth filling his mouth. A low howl began rising in his throat. The dog in the dragon costume pulled sharply back on the leash, though, just as the man had done to the dog. The jolt was enough to silence the growl from the man, who now stared sullenly at me. Ambus began to howl. He was always a quiet dog, and it had been so long since I heard him make a sound like that that I thought I'd heard a wolf. But she looked like she was getting ready to lunge again, but I grabbed her by the collar and snapped her leash back on. The old dog sprang away, launching herself a few feet before the leash snapped her back to the ground. Ambus, no, leave it. The man began to growl again in response, but the black lab gave another sharp tug on the leash to calm the man. Ambus dropped to my feet and whined, looking at my helpless confusion for guidance. I do so love having an animal companion. Orgel and I are going to be together forever. It was the black lab speaking now, though, while the man continued to growl. I even caught a glimpse of evenly spaced human teeth in the dog's mouth. Together forever. Would you like that? For her to be like Wargle? The black lab inquired innocently. The voice matched the man perfectly, and my eyes kept flashing between the two to catch how the ventriloquism act was performed. The man's lips were tightly pursed again, though, and the subliminal growl never quite vanishing. I don't want forever. The words caught in my throat. Then you don't love Ambus like I love Wargle, the black lab said. It twisted and pulled, and suddenly the rope slipped free from around its neck. It was advancing, but Ambus was ready. I wasn't expecting how powerfully my old dog launched herself. The leash tore free from my numb fingers. I flailed after it, too slow. The two dogs collided beside the fire, interlocking jaws and a howl from Ambus, a human screech from the black lab. They were rolling on the ground now, 
Through the burning embers, two writhing bodies intermingled in their violent dance. I tried to intervene and pull them apart, but the man was barking and snarling at me now. I could hear Ambus yelp in pain, though, prompting me to charge straight at the man blocking my path. He seemed unsteady on his two feet and collapsed readily, allowing me to leap onto the black lab. I gripped its dragon costume and wrenched it back, but the creature wriggled free at once and leapt on Ambus once more. The green cloth removed, the scattered embers revealed red and black interlocking scales like those of a serpent running down the creature's hide. The animal's human teeth made it a poor match for my husky though, and the two of us are soon able to overpower the creature. The man had already fled yelping into the darkness by the time I got the two dogs apart. Traitor! The scaled beast howled after its human. Don't you dare run from me, Wargle. With that, the monster sprinted into the night, chasing its human counterpart. I clutched Ambus to me, too afraid to check her for injuries, just holding her and gasping for breath while I listened to the shouting slowly disappear. I won't let you go. I need you. Please, I don't want to be alone. Please, Wargle. Please come back. Begging, and then screaming, and now softly in the quiet night, I hear the animal crying as a human might, frightened and alone. Or perhaps they have reunited, and it really is the human weeping over how close he came to losing his only companion. Ambus wasn't seriously injured from the fight, and the dog's human teeth only managed to take a small piece out of one of her ears. She's sleeping at my side as I write this, whimpering slightly in her sleep. I stroked her to comfort her for a long time, but I've stopped since her patchy hair kept coming out in my hand. Since I felt the scales hardening along her skin, and hear whispered words smuggled in amongst her quiet whimpering, I won't leave her here, but she might have to wear the dragon costume herself so she doesn't scare the children. I don't want forever, but I'm sure as hell not ready to let go yet. <laughs>